0: Welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell.
1: Okay, so my name is Karis. Uh, I am a PhD student at UCL. And uh, for <laughs> the thing that is relevant uh, to this is that at UCL there's a really cool postgrad program um, where the postgraduate students can be employed to work in UCL's museums. So we have three museums, as well as a variety of other collections and a new museum-like space which is opening soon, I think. Um, but the three ones that I work in are the Art Museum, the Grant Museum of Zoology and Anatomy, um, and then the, the Petrie Museum um, of Egyptology. And so uh, basically we are there as like, we sort of hover awkwardly in the museum and wait until people walk past and then ask them if they want to have a chat about anything they've seen in the museum, if they have any questions. Um, And we're there also to sort of talk about our research and the research that's happening at UCL. So it's like a public engagement kind of position, um, which is facilitated by the amazing collections that we have. So I started working as one of these postgraduate uh, student engages. Um, when I started at UCL in 2014, now, um, and I've worked in all of the the museums, um, but I'm going to be talking about an object from the the Petrie Museum, which is the the bust of Amelia Edwards. Excellent.
0: And where is this bust in the museum?
1: Uh, so currently, though it has moved, like in the time that I've been there, the the Petrie so the Petrie Museum has 80,000 objects. Oh my god! Uh, and it is in a space that it was given as a temporary space as like a we promise you we will get you space to put all of your objects on display <laughs> but <laughs> like decades ago and that still hasn't happened like pre-war um, <laughs> oh wow <laughs> and uh, uh, so that like there's so much stuff and there isn't enough places to display it Um and the staff like changes quite has has changed quite a lot um, and lots of really exciting people with amazing ideas have, have come through so they they often change sort of the, the way that the museum looks, which is really cool because it means my job never gets boring, um, but it is difficult to point out where specific things are. Yeah, so, like it was. Oh, yes. Nope. Okay. So at the time of recording, it is as you literally come into the entrance of the museum, on the, the in the like little foyer where there's a nice helpful person sat at a desk to give you reading materials and that kind of thing, on the right hand side of that doorway, like you come in and you look right and that's where the busters.
0: Excellent. And there's another image of Amelia in the museum as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so there's a, a portrait of her as well, which is um if you come into the museum proper, um and you sort of you can't head straight. Because you have to sort of like duck around the side of a cabinet. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you, as best you can, head straight. So if you head sort of to the the back wall of the museum, which would be facing you as you come in through the entrance of the foyer, um, and then look to your right, so you're where all the Neanderthal stuff is mm-hmm. and, like, objects which are just tens of thousands of years old, and it's really cool. Um, on the back, there is a, um, a big portrait of Flinders Petrie, the man for whom the museum is named, um, and then a big portrait of Amelia Edwards, which is slightly smaller, and I believe that it's like, um, it's not the original portrait, it's like a blown-up like, version yeah. of of a painting of her um and it's smaller than Flinders Petrie um and all of the collection that's her collection she donated it to UCL but it's named for yeah. for the for the dude um,
0: as as with so many fantastic <laughs> things in in the world around us um but it's interesting because that painting although uh it's kind of clear that it's Petrie next to her it like it doesn't have a name or anything um and I don't know about the bust is that one engraved or named or something? I
1: think that one is named, yeah. yeah. So there's, um, something,
0: there's something about it being her. Yes. And so why is Amelia Edwards important then in the museum?
1: The collection exists because of Amelia Edwards um, and both in terms of the fact that it's at UCL but also the fact that this stuff was collected in the first place. Um, so Amelia Edwards uh, was incredibly instrumental to egyptology um and modern archaeological practices because as an individual she made it sort of her life's mission to fund and support people who were doing archaeology in a a science as scientific as, as possible at the time um but also like in a more careful way so um the kind of the story goes that uh when um she was uh i can tell you exactly how old she is actually um so in in 1872 so she's in her 40s at this at this point um she went on a trip to egypt um and one of the sources that i read said that she went on a trip to egypt because she went on a trip to france and it rained the whole time <laughs> <laughs> haven't we all been there <laughs> oh, sunny a holiday next time yeah, thank you <laughs> Exactly. so she went on a trip to egypt and um she had an amazing time. She absolutely fell in love with um, lots of aspects of Egypt. She wrote a best-serving travel book, which is um, called A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, uh, which like immediately sold out. And she it took her four years to write and to do all the research properly. She hand-illustrated it because um, she was also an incredibly talented artist uh, as well as like a, a really quite well-respected writer. Um and when she was in Egypt, uh, she fell in love with um, like a lot of the ancient artifacts that she saw, but she became really quite appalled by the way that those artifacts were being treated. So at the time, what was happening was a lot of people, particularly like Western people, w- were going out to Egypt and they were essentially robbing graves um, and they were destroying lots of incredibly important pieces of heritage. Um, there's one story, uh, though it's like a bit myth mythology and like it's unclear whether or not the people that it's attributed in the story are the actual people um or what but there's a story that she saw um a quote-unquote archaeologist find um uh, like a hand sticking out of a tomb with this beautiful gold bracelet on it um and he took the the bracelet and then just left the human remains Mm -hmm. um because what people were interested in were the like shiny, gold, beautiful things that were going to make them lots of money. And nobody really cared about the other history um, that was there. Mm-hmm. So she, when she came back to the UK, she co-founded something called the Egypt Exploratory Fund. Um, so this was founded in 1882, and it was founded through the British Museum. Um, and basically what it was was a fund um, that they would pick the archaeologists uh, and they would choose people who had demonstrated that they were capable of using sort of best practices. Um, and so one of the people that she funded quite a lot was Flinders Petrie.
0: Yeah, and she she thinks he's like a fantastic archaeologist. Yes, he?
1: which is maybe now is the, the probably the best time to say he was massively racist. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the archaeology that he did was to further the eugenics movement, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously terrible. Um, from a purely sort of like, scientific point of view in terms of the practices that he employed when he was working with artifacts like both on uh on site and off site regardless of the conclusions he was making from them those practices were much better than what other people were doing Mm. so flinders petrie was the person who was like why don't we uh why don't we draw the site before we take all the objects out and then we'll remember what like what they look like when they were in the ground and that might be helpful for when we're trying to work out why They're they were there. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um he also developed this uh, really important dating system where he used the like pots that were found in the sites that he was digging on um essentially to work out the chronology of where all of the the burial sites that he was working with, like when they were left in um like in the in the states that they were found in. Um and he did this by Uh, tracking fashion, essentially, and materials of different pots through time. Um, And then he was able to date the, the sites using this sort of like timeline that he'd created. And modern carbon dating techniques now tell us that he was within about 100, 200 years for oh. all of his dates. So wow. like it was a very, yeah. very impressive system. Um, the conclusions that he was drawing from his work, less, less oft, good. <laughs> often terrible, um, often really quite heavily flawed and biased by his his like racist beliefs. Mm. Um, but he did do a, a lot in terms of how those objects were taken out of the ground. More safely okay. um, and and better,
0: and that work was supported by supported by Amelia's money.
1: Yes, so Amelia Edwards was was really impressed by his archaeological practices. I actually don't know about her like personal beliefs in terms of the eugenics movement. I couldn't find anything.
0: I yeah, I didn't find anything either. And I'm but I'm assuming like she by other things that she does right, like she founds the chair at UCL for Egyptology and stuff. She's obviously not directly opposed to all of the work that's being done at ucl in that field yeah i mean maybe there's like tacit condoning of that in, yeah in her actions but yeah i don't know yeah I, I
1: yeah so i couldn't find anything to say that she was like a venomous eugenicist but she definitely there's nothing that i could find on the record that says that she knew that it was wrong uh which is unfortunate um but she yeah supportive linda's petrie because she supported his archaeological practices, at the very least. Um, And so she used the fund to essentially fund all of his his work. Um, And because she was putting up the money, um, it meant that the things that he was extracting from Egypt, they belonged to her. Um, And then when she died, she donated her collection to UCL. Um, And she donated it to UCL for two reasons, really. Um, The first one was that uh, she did not have a very nice time at the British Museum. Um, Essentially, the organisation that she created tried to push her out and they took control away from her because she was a woman and they didn't want a woman in charge of that organisation. Um, and the second reason, the reason why she chose UCL specifically is because UCL was the first university in, in England that allowed women to graduate on an equal standing. Um, so prior to that, uh, women were allowed to attend university, but they weren't necessarily allowed to go to all of the lectures. And
0: they definitely couldn't sit the exams.
1: No. Um, so you could, you would come out with like a diploma, which said that you were then. Um, but it wasn't the same as a degree, and you basically you had to go up to all of your lecturers individually and be like, "Do you mind if I come to your class?" Um, but UCL said, "No, we're going to let women uh, graduate degrees," and so that's why she chose UCL. So a lot of people were very worried when she donated her collection because UCL is very physically close to the British Museum. Mm. So people were concerned that her collection, which is the second largest collection of Egyptology outside of Egypt, um, the largest being at the British Museum, would just be sort of engulfed by that collection, and it would become an extension of the British Museum. So she actually wrote in her will that, um, in order to to be the curator, I think I think it's the curator of the. Um, Petrie Museum, you have to be under the age of forty, knowing that if you're running the British Museum, like you're gonna be over the age of forty, so no one can hold those positions at the same time, which means that the the two collections couldn't be combined, yeah. essentially. Oh. So she's the reason we have the collection. Wow,
0: that's really cool. I didn't know that it was so, like, stipulated that you had to be adamantly also against the British Museum <laughs> if you worked for the Petrie Museum. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so she sets up this chair as well, right, that allows Petrie to be a professor at, at yes. the university. Yeah, so she created, like... I think, is is it
1: named after him?
0: No, I think it's named after her. I've, I've seen oh. it. It's the Edwards chair in Egyptology. Oh, it's so. nice.
1: She's got her name on something. Yeah,
0: exactly. And um, they gave her like a £5,000 endowment for the chair and the collection for study. Um, but the rest of her like letters and books and stuff go to Somerville College. Um, in, in Oxford. In, in Oxford, yeah. Um, because she like clearly from what you're saying, she was like really proactive on like women's education, women's suffrage.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the kind of the, like the right, she's lived at the right time. Mm. She was she was quite a wealthy woman. But but she didn't inherit this money. So she she was born into quite a like a reasonably wealthy family. Um so she was born in 1831. Um her like dad was in the military. Um her like she was educated at home by her mum. So she had access like she was of a class where she had access to to lots of of things that would give her like a good start in life mm-hmm. um, but she did make a lot of wealth herself so she she's like she's a ridiculous woman she um she published her first poem when she was seven years old and her first story when she was 13 amazing um and she was a very very talented writer she wrote lots and lots of different types of things. So she's quite famous for her like ghost stories. Ooh. Um one of her first well-selling novels that she wrote was quite scandalous because it was about <gasps> bigamy and oh she goodness. like picked these topics that people of the time were like scandalized by and mm-hmm. really excited by, so she did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, out of that and she like had lots of other talents um, so she was really into music when she was young uh, but she contracted typhus and then it became really painful for her to sing
0: so she had to stop doing that and you said she painted the illustrations for the book
1: yeah so she was a really talented artist um, and she used to do quite a lot of drawing and painting when she was young sufficiently so that an artist of the time saw some of her work and said like I could I could mentor her I could make her into an artist um, and her parents were like no yeah she's a girl <laughs> um, well it's
0: weird. It wasn't. It wasn't specifically oh, okay. that she was
1: a, a girl. It was that um, artists die penniless and alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, at least there's a. At least there's a financial worry there. So many times it's like, oh, I would, but uh, she's a girl, so yeah. uh, we're gonna finish her education, and she doesn't need to be an artist, and she doesn't need to be anything apart from. Beautiful in the living room for her future partner.
1: Um, yeah, they were worried that it wasn't sort of like proper enough.
0: Oh, well, that's good. Um, a, a unique concern. But anecdotally, it seemed that that was
1: quite upsetting to her. Yeah. Um, and uh, she she never really got over that. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was what she felt her true calling was. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but she was really good at writing. Um, and she uh, then became a travel writer. So she started going on all of these exciting adventures, mm-hmm. trying to explore the world. This all happened after her parents died. Yeah. So when her parents died, she, there was some inheritance and she used that to go on lots of really nice trips. Mm-hmm. But then she would write books about the trips and that made
0: her quite yeah. a lot of money. And they have some really great, so they have some really great titles. The Thousand Miles Up the Nile is fantastic, but yeah. the other ones are Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Yes, so that was about the the Dolomite Mountains in Italy. Yeah, and then there's one called Sites and Stories, which sounds wonderful as well. I mean, I want to read that. Um and then like all kinds of great things. Pharaohs, fellas, and explorers. Nice. Although fellas spelt F-E-L-L-A-H. Um, I don't know what this is. Is that like, I don't know if that's like a slang for men in the Victorian period or this is like a an Egyptology term. Maybe it was a pun. I don't know. Who knows? Um,
1: um, yeah. So she wrote lots and lots of books. So she said that it took her like two years to to properly, re- like she really threw herself into these books. She would research them for years and then she would write them. She did a lot of the illustrations herself. Um, and when she set up the fund, she actually kind of like diverted her focus to raising money for that so she did like a big two year long um, series of lectures across America Um, and so she would go and she would do these lectures and then she would ask people for donations Mm. and it was um, so it was illegal for you to sell artifacts that you had dug out of Egypt but what you could do as like a loophole which I obviously don't condone is um, you could ask for donations and then you could give things as gifts that's very nice she would take a lot of like artifacts with her, and and get donations yeah. from from wealthy donors, yeah. and then and then give them gifts in return. Yeah. A common one was sort of like small idols that were found in in mm. graves as as like um, for gods, okay. um, that kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, so she did that in order to acquire quite a lot of money for the the fund. Yeah. So she. Came from a place of privilege, but she did also work extremely yeah, hard. Yeah,
0: by the looks of it, she has much more money when she dies than she did when her parents died. Yeah, and that's not a function of like inheriting and investing well.
1: Yeah, so the um the a thousand miles up the Nile, uh, that was republished like a whole bunch of times. Her first sort of big break, uh, she wrote a book that was. Was republished like five times and that kind of thing. So, like, she didn't write bestsellers. Yeah, she she did have a lot of talent
0: yeah. in that respect. Oh, awesome. So she, so she's like a super fantastic person, right? Like, she's amazing. Why, why do you think we don't talk about her as much as we might?
1: I so I think there are like a lot of things, and I I would like to say at this point that the Petrie Museum, like the people who work at the Petrie Museum are very aware of Amelia Edwards and her legacy and and like do talk about her um and there are I know for a fact a couple of people who work or have worked in the Petrie Museum who are like it's about time we change the name yeah <laughs> it should be the Edwards museum um, but uh so we do talk about her, but we also miss out a massive part of her life okay um and I like I think that we maybe don't talk about her as much as Petrie, and it definitely the museum was definitely a named for Petrie. And not Edward's like because he was a man and there's that um, angle of of misogyny. But something that we don't really ever talk about or what gets left out of um, her story was the fact that she had relationships with women. Um, And I don't know how Amelia Edwards identified, I don't know if she called herself um, a sapphist or a lesbian or um, if she didn't use a name at at all. Um, But she did have relationships. And important relationships with women that in a lot of the sources about her life, those relationships have been
0: sidelined or erased completely. Or in the in a really irritating way, like kind of passed over where there's so some of the sources I've read in preparing for this have been like, Oh, she had a, a female companion and then at no point is that person named anywhere. And so it's yeah. like, Well who like who even were these people? They're, yes, they're tacitly written out there as well.
1: Exactly. Um, so, like her. So, um, when she died, so she she moved to Bristol um, in her in later life, um, and she passed away in 1892 of uh, influenza or like complications of influenza, um, and she was buried uh, next to the woman that she lived with, um, Ellen Bracea, who had passed away just a, f- a few months earlier. Uh, so they were buried together, which like. People do that because they love each other, mm. and there are obviously lots of different types of love. But that is what married couples do. It's it's what partners do.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because Ellen was previously married. Right on her gravestone, it says that she's a widow of of John Brasher, um, and then it says like underneath that, and for more than thirty years, the beloved friend of Amelia Edwards, and she and she's buried next to Amelia and not next to John. Right? Yeah, so- um,
1: and her daughter Ellen Brasher's daughter is buried with with her.
0: Oh okay I didn't know that Sarah
1: yeah. yeah um so she's buried with with um the two of them um and uh so yeah Ellen Brasher, the the person that she chose to be buried next to is referred to her as her companion which is uh, <laughs> um a very irritating term for like female partner yeah or female lover um, so the person who accompanied her on her first trip the first time that she went on an adventure and then wrote about it and like became a travel writer in in the dolomite um, like mountains in Italy um there's a woman called Lucy Renshaw who is referred to as her friend um, but Lucy is also the person that she takes with her to Egypt like I I obviously uh, don't condone like imposing sexual identities on people in in the past but here it seems so clear that those identities have been removed yeah by h- historians um and that's really dishonest to the relationships that those women had um and what i find very annoying about like particularly amelia edwards um is the the context in which lots of people that I have spoken to and, and worked with um, are really like big champions of her and they recognise how important she was um, to the collection, but we don't ever really talk about this. Um, so for LGBT History Month this year, I wrote a blog post, uh, because all of the people who work in the, the museums in the position that I'm in, we keep a blog, which is called the Student Engagers Blog, but it's, it's worth checking out, it's really interesting. So I wrote a blog post about her for LGBT History Month and I sent it to my line manager, who has to like, approve all my blog posts, Um and she's like, oh, that's so interesting. I didn't
0: realise that she was gay or, or bisexual. Um, oh wow. Okay. So it's like even within the museum, it's still yeah. reasonably unknown.
1: And there's a there was a, there was already a blog post about her, but it didn't mention that part of her life even at her companions. all. Companions. And like, it's just f- like phenomenal because it's definitely worth talking about. This is a woman who, the way that she lived her life, was that she and her girlfriends went to these incredible different places. And on some occasions, people like refused to take her there. So um that first trip that she went on, um, she was there with like her her staff and uh, she was there with Lucy renshaw's family and with like Lucy Renshaw's like maidservants. And they just refused. They were like, these two women can't go to the Dolomite like, region. It's like it's too dangerous. To no at this point, it like basically anyone from outside that region didn't know anything about it It was really uncharted territory and she was like i'm gonna hire some local guides and they're gonna take us and they went to all of these dangerous places that like lots of people who had traveled there had, had died there before um where it was already like kind of outrageous that it was a woman in a massive hoop skirt like traveling down the congo but she was doing it with her girlfriend yeah and that's like i think phenomenal and it's surprises it doesn't surprise me (laughs) but it should be surprising that we don't talk about what that would have meant at the time yeah so like Uh, this is at a time where the british are going around enforcing homophobic laws on other countries laws that like those countries have had to fight against for centuries afterwards and are
0: literally only just like being able to reject that aspect of exactly. colonialism and that they that's that, that, that this isn't discussed in the story about somebody who is kind of part of that British project of collecting and bringing things back um, while simultaneously like not representing the British values of like homophobia and uh, those kind of colonial ideas that go with it.
1: Yeah. And yet people were still buying her books. Yeah. And there's no way that people didn't, like, know this because she was writing about her, but she was also writing
0: about her partners. Yeah. And and, and it says, like, someone writes that um, she makes no secret of her lesbian lifestyle. Like, yeah. it was very clearly known among other academics at UCL and, and more widely. Yeah. So, yeah, it must have been... I mean, it, it just kind of brings to light the fact that there must have been um, so much of this going on at the time that it was... Not really some a reason to boycott books or boycott people's lectures yeah. or anything in a way that maybe we look back and think about that time now yeah um, and that's kind of lost in the sidelines of history
1: the other thing that I think is interesting that we also don't really talk about is that she had more than one partner yeah so like whenever we talk about the, like, five lesbians that people point to in history or bisexual women that people point to in history. Like, um, like, uh, Virginia Woolf, who there's going to be a film coming out about her where two, like, nice straight actresses are going to (laughs) play her and and her partner. Like, it's always, like, there's... uh, The narrative is that there's um, uh, either a woman who is married and then she meets a woman and then, like, that changes Mm -hmm. her sexuality. Or there are two women, um, like the ladies of Clan Goughlin, like yep. there's, there's two women who uh, they defile the odds to go and make a life for themselves, often in, in isolation. Um, but, I mean, Amelia Edwards had like successive, she had relationships which are much, I guess, more similar to how we would think about relationships now, where mm-hmm. she had like them sort of successfully, successively. And successfully. And successfully in her life. Um, and it didn't work out. And then it didn't work out and then she found someone that she spent, like, the majority of her life with. Um, And that's also, like, that doesn't fit into the narrative that we tend to tell of the specific examples that we're allowed to talk about yes. of women who had relationships with other women yeah. in history.
0: Or just women's relationships in history. Like the way we talk about Victorian women always is tied to the idea of like a single partner. Most of them like male. But even, yeah. even if we look at yeah, like you're saying, the female partners, like it's always a single example. But then I think this is like interesting in terms of how we present even like normative uh, relationships. So not just relationships in the Victorian area, but also relationships Um, in further back historical periods and like Amelia Edwards sits within like those portraits in that bus sit within a collection where we try to find these single normative couplings where it's one person with another person for the whole of their life and that might be the way that they were buried together or that might be the way that they are painted together in a particular piece of pottery or in the case of like Victorian people like paintings but we try not to dwell on those narratives where there are multiple partners these people have probably existed all the way through history right like it's not a weird modern thing yeah that we suddenly have like multiple partners in our lives like it's almost certainly always been a thing but that we don't show that either in the museum collections or in the way we talk about these people who founded and and led the museums to start with
1: yeah yeah because there's definitely like we have like historical examples so like uh in like the Vikings, there's like, we know about their code of practice where women were allowed to divorce their partners and the reasons that they were allowed to do that. And so we know that they had that kind of relationship. But yeah, I think that's interesting that maybe the like focal point for where that view of relationships in history comes from is from the Victorian time period.
0: Yeah, who knows? So if you we were, if we were like to try and um, explore these, like this idea of stories and um, in particular, historical women who were groundbreaking both for their work and for their relationships and for the way they conducted those relationships. Like we talk about Amelia Edwards. Do you think there's a way of maybe engaging this in both the Petrie museum, but also other museums? Is it just a case of kind of writing, being more comfortable with writing these texts or, um, including them online? I think that's interesting. I've seen, so I've seen places where it's done differently Mm. Um,
1: So, for example, in the Lake District, which is where Beatrix Potter lived, uh, I went to a small museum which had a lot of information about her, Um, and the museum is not the museum of Beatrix Potter, but they sh- open up her life and tell you a lot more about it. For example, she was, a, like, a champion sheep breeder. She was, like, really good at sheep breeding. Did not know that about Beatrix Potter, um, thank you. And she is super, super well-respected within those communities, so she used to be invited to, like, judge sheep shows and stuff. Um, and that... Uh, so the the museum, like, there looks at lots of things, but they dedicate, like, a lot of their space to her, um, which is maybe one one way of doing it. Like, I think there's... you just need to take the time and have more information. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's obviously not always possible. I think what's interesting about the Petrie Museum is that they like, have made an effort to show a wider diversity of the people who were involved in the collection. So it's whilst it's the case that Flinders Petrie was funded on a lot of the digs that collected the stuff, um, and he ran a lot of those dig sites, he wasn't the person who physically took every single object out, nor was he the person who, like, recorded that object and drew that object and made conclusions on that object for every single object. And he worked with lots of Egyptian archaeologists, um, so people who uh, were the guides on the sites that they were at and uh, showed them, like where to dig, interpreted a lot of the things because they had knowledge um which was more relevant because they were themselves um like had grown up in, in Egypt. Um and there was this big exchange of knowledge where um Petrie taught like his particular process of archaeology and and, and they shared their practices and their local knowledge with him. Um and so the Petrie Museum is trying to include more of those voices. So around the museum it has like images of some of those people and it tells you a little bit about their life. Um with I think the view of of making people see those objects differently mm-hmm. because they weren't all taken by Petrie. Mm-hmm. And I don't see why you couldn't do that in the museum. Yeah. So like some of those objects are objects
0: that Amelia Edwards would have handled. Yeah and, and a lot of them are things that she donated anyway so if yeah. you want to make that case like
1: yeah so um amelia edwards like made a number of entries to the encyclopedia britannica ah, and cool. some of those entries are about the objects in the museum and i think it would be yeah good to to know those things similarly like a lot of the um the note cards that you see in the petrie museum and the writing that is on them that is like petrie's handwriting some of those note cards petrie's wife's handwriting so maybe there are things that Amelia Edwards, like, wrote about.
0: Yeah. Well, it would make sense, right? Yeah. Like, it would be unusual that she had not labelled a single one of her specimens. Yes. Given that she had so many.
1: So I, I think that the, like, maybe a thing would be having a greater presence of her mm-hmm. in the museum. Yeah. And that maybe is, is just part of, like, having her name marked. Let's see visibly the women who put together that collection, or hearing more about st- the students, um, Elise Gretel and Violet Lafleur, who um, during the Second World War were really instrumental to packing up the objects in the museum and and putting them in safekeeping, so they were protected, um, because UCL like was a target during yeah during the Blitz, um, and like actually having. Like pictures of them, seeing them physically there. In terms of like the other dimension by which um Amelia Edwards is, is erased, um, and looking at her sexuality, I think that whilst maybe you could make the argument that her sexuality didn't have anything to do with her passion for Egyptology, I think you can make the argument that maybe it, it did. Like maybe if she had had been heterosexual and she had wanted a husband and she'd wanted like a heteronormative life. She wouldn't have been driven to go all over the world doing the things that she did. Maybe the reason why she went to all of those places was because she couldn't live with her partner in the way that she wanted to in the society that she was living in. Like, I think there is a connection there which can be explored. Um, and uh, the museum that was created because of her is is as good a place as any as there is to explore it. Mm-hmm. And even if it has absolutely nothing to do with that collection, like, I still think it's worth knowing. Yeah. Um, like, it is a part of her that she did not hide. Yeah. So it's dishonest to her memory for people just not to, like, just to admit that that part of mm-hmm. her now.
0: And if nothing else, I mean, like, it was on those trips that she wrote these books and it's upon those books that this collection is built. So, like, to say that it has nothing to do with the travels and trips that she was on is to fundamentally misunderstand, like, where this museum comes from. And it's from her being able to invest all that time and effort, like we talked about before, in developing those stories, in laying that context, in writing those very successful books. Yeah. And raising that money that she goes on to give us in the museum.
1: And anyone who does anything creative and has a partner, they know that it is their partner who is like, no, it's all right, I think you can do it. Or you maybe need to take a walk because you've gone a little bit loopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, holds your hand when you're like freaking out because you don't know whether or not it's going to get published and is support. Or, like they should be supportive to you through that. Yeah. And so like just as if Amelia Edwards had been a man who had had a wife who stood behind them, I would feel passionately that that wife should receive like acknowledgement of their existence in the creation of of what had been created Amelia Edwards's partners throughout her whole life also deserve that and they definitely don't deserve to just have their names like vanish from the places where you can read about her and them yes exactly
0: so more than anything maybe it's getting those names in at least at you know at least so people can see that they're there yeah and building from there towards something that is more inclusive in the museum space as well Yes. Yeah. Because it's also almost certainly not just Amelia Edwards that this happens to, right? Like, it yeah, is exactly. Women across museums, particularly non-cultural museums, scientific museums, museums of any kind of archaeology, yeah. who, are, who are subject moreover, to these treatments of kind of being pushed out of the, the narrative and their relationships being pushed out of the narrative as well.
1: I have had, I've had fantastic conversations with people in the museum. Amelia Edwards is the person that I talk about when people come to the museum.
0: Good. Everyone's Um, learning through you.
1: um, And I like, it is a big focal point of the story that I tell. Um, and I've had people like sidle up to me after they've overheard me talking to people about the museum and they'll be like, oh, I'm really sorry. Did you say that, uh, she, that she was gay? And I was like, well, you know, she had she had partners and they were like, this is amazing. Can we talk about that, please? Yep. Um, and so being able to see in other people the excitement when they realize that, like, they have more of a connection to this place than they thought that
0: they did. Um that's really important. It's kind cool. of cool. Yeah. And it must be nice for you as somebody who works there. <laughs> yeah. Spreading the game. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, but you're getting getting a chance to also engage with people on like a, like a less superficial connection. Like yeah. it's not just like, oh, that's a cool scarab beetle. Haven't seen one of them before. It's like you probably get a lovely conversation with those people who learn something that they probably won't forget. Like that's surprising knowledge for them which it shouldn't be, but it's, you know, new and different and that's exciting for people who come to the museum space as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Karis, for sharing your knowledge about... Uh, Amelia Edwards. Thank you for having me. Love talking about Amelia Edwards. Yes.
1: could do it all day. Excellent. Uh, If you would like to hear more stories about LGBT people, um, I run a podcast called The Coming Out Tapes, which is available wherever you got this podcast, probably. Um, So you can either download it on your podcasting app, or uh, if you're a streamer, you can go to the website smartmaterialcollective.net which has The Coming Out Tapes plus a whole bunch of really cool, nerdy podcasts. It's basically, it's just a whole bunch of interviews with people from the community talking about coming out and their experiences, uh, it's really lovely. So you should check it out.
0: Excellent. And that's not that's not all you do. Where else can people see you or catch you? Uh,
1: so I'm, I'm one of the comedians, um, so I, I do stand-up comedy, often about the intersection of science and being LGBT, um, which ripe and fertile ground for comedy. (laughs) Um, So uh, if you go to my website, which is com, then you can find out where my next gigs are. Uh, But I'm mostly based in London. I've got a series of, um, I'm doing quite a lot of skeptics talks at the moment, which is specifically about scientific research on the LGBT community. So if you live in uh, Cambridge or Coventry um, or somewhere that has a skeptics, uh, which is sort of around london then uh there's a good chance i'll be coming to a talk
0: near you soon catch caris at a comedy skeptics gig near you and that's it for this episode of behind the glass cabinet Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening.